Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the podcast. Rick Roberts here, and today I've got an interview with Brad Montgomery. Brad is a funny keynote speaker. He does keynotes that are fresh, relevant, and engaging, and he's a very thoughtful, insightful guy. Started out in magic and then transformed into a speaker who is funny, and now a speaker who is funny and can also move you. I love the progress. I love the process. You're going to love this interview with Brad Montgomery. Hang tight. That'll be here in just a second. I did want to say thanks to a new Patreon supporter, John P. Smith, for supporting the podcast through Patreon. John has joined about 50 others who support the podcast each month with a specific monthly donation, and he's at the $7 or more a level. So it's that includes, for him, is a membership in Club 52, Club 52 delivers a weekly email into your inbox with a single actionable tip to help you become bigger, better, and more bookable. And you also get a chance to jump on our quarterly online hangouts where we dig deep into different topics. And if you missed the last hangout and you're part of Club 52, you want to go online to Patreon and download a worksheet and listen to that particular bonus uh, session that we had on there that will give you a lot of insight on how to get your business together quickly. And it was one of the best hangouts that we've had in a while. And if you have uh, just not taken advantage of that and you're a part of Club 52, you definitely go back and grab that as uh, soon as you can. All right, let's get into this week's episode with Brad Montgomery. I am on the phone through the computer with Brad Montgomery. Brad, how's it going today? Rick, I'm psyched to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you on. Brad is a guy I've met through the National Speakers Association and just had little chances to see him in action through some different uh, you know, breakout sessions that we had. And, and I know he's a funny guy, and I know he's speaking at a high level, so I wanted to get you on today and just kind of find out more about you. Like you were saying, we, we know each other, but we don't really know each other, so this will be a fun journey through that, but also to figure out... What makes Brad Montgomery tick and what you're up to? Sound fun? Rock on. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here. And yeah, you're one of those guys that I've l- laughed at or with or whatever. <laughs> and I've admired you for a long time. So I'm glad to be able to hang out. Well, thank you. Um, we are just talking a second ago. You're based in Denver, Colorado. You grew up there when uh, before college and before com- you know, comedy and magic and everything else that we're going to talk about. What, what was it like growing up in Colorado and what was the, uh, you know, your surroundings, your friends, your family, what was that all like? Yeah. You know, the, there's this, seems like an unwritten rule, Rick, that to be a really good comic, you have to come from a screwed up background and you have to have maybe at least one addiction issue and father that hit you. I, I'm never going to be a good comedian because my background is boring. <laughs> Two parents got along great. We didn't have money issues. Uh, you know, I had two siblings that were good to me. School was fine and straightforward. I had, a, I had in many ways, um, you know, I had an idyllic childhood and that I, it was missing all of the angst that I, I feel like I, I ought to have to be a good comedian. <laughs> well, I, I'm kind of similar where I had a, a, a fairly easy go of it as a, as a kid and didn't have, you know, high tragic losses in life early or anything like that to trigger the need for laughter. But, 
you know, when I was young, I kind of found my way to fit in was, was using humor to kind of, you know, introduce myself to people. Is, is that how you came across humor and, and magic when you first started? In some ways, I think I'm a fairly typical third kid because I had two really high achieving siblings that I'm the youngest. And I think that was my way. So, and I got a little, I got, I remember some early times making people laugh, realizing, oh, I can be a clown and get a little attention. That's cool. What, what was on your radar early as a career when you were prepping for college and even in college? I was positive I was going to go to law school because my granddad's a lawyer. So I knew about that. Then my dad's a lawyer and I liked my dad. Um, so I was just kind of convinced that's what I should do. Cause I honestly couldn't think of anything else. So I had convinced myself that when I got out of college, I will spend one year pursuing this passion of mine, which is magic. I was a magician. And then I go to law school and get serious. And I had a pretty good year, meaning I wasn't as desperate as I thought. <laughs> and, and I made a little bit more money than I thought. And I had a little bit, some nice things happen to me. And also, I think, Rick, I got away from that path so when you're when I was young, it made me feel comfortable to have a path. Like, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. And then during that year, I kind of got comfortable with, I don't have a path. That's okay. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm not going to law school. And I don't have a plan, but I'm not doing that. Was magic something you developed in high school or was it college? Seventh grade, Rick, I ditched math. I ditched and went to the freaking school library because <laughs> I'm a geek. And then I checked out a book on magic tricks called Henry Hayes Amateur Magician's Handbook which is still a great book. And that got me started. I started it in junior high. Were there magicians that you looked at when you were in junior high, high school, college, that you're like, man, if I could just do that, or you know, people that you kind of got inspiration from? I can, and it's relevant to our talk about humor because it was a problem. And let me explain. I think magicians have a messed up way of learning and teaching each other. We all learn the same tricks. You go and learn the linking rings, and uh, we buy the same stuff. And sometimes when you buy a magic trick from a magic store, it might say patter included, which means script included. And then uh, you might take a lesson from somebody and they say, and here's Rick where you say, and they teach you what to say. So as a young or entry-level magician, you're trained to sort of learn what to say and when. Um, and that's, that's part of it. That's, how you, that's the technique of how you get the trick done. But then as you start to grow in magic, you realize I'm screwed because all of the words coming out of my mouth are the same as other magicians. And the, not only are the tricks the same as other magicians, but I'm saying the same words. That's interesting. So at what point did you start to, to jettison the, the you know, pre-written pattern and putting your own personality into your shows? Sounds like it was kind of later on. Yeah. And it was a process too, because um, I did my comedy on um, one of the things I've always admired about you, Rick, is I sense when I'm watching your stuff, oh, you're a writer. You can sit down with a pencil and make this happen. And I was never like that. I was doing straightforward magic tricks. Um, and then funny things would happen, or maybe I would say something and I'd realize, oh, that was funny. I should say it again next time. Mm-hmm. Or the audience would say something and oh, that was funny. And then through the course of a working a trick out for the, you know, a, over years, really, it became funny as opposed to me designing it funny. There was never a time where I said I should be unique. It was a, a morph of, oh, I get it, Brad. What, what is good about this trick now is all of the things that I came w- up with after I learned it. I need to keep that and lose everything that I said when I learned it because I was copying other magicians. 
Right. So, you know, in a way, though, the the pre-written pattern stuff, there's a value to that because you see the structure of, of the show and the structure of what works. Whereas I don't think, well, I, you know, I guess comedians, you know, we always emulate our, our favorites when we first start. I wanted to be Steve Martin. I'm sure you probably appreciated him, too, with his magic skills. So I really thought I was going to be the next Steve Martin. I, I would write these really crazy bits and, and I went to do them and people would just stare at me. And I'm like, oh, the reason they're not laughing is, A, I'm not a genius, and B, I'm not Steve Martin. And so <laughs> so when you first started doing your magic after college, what was the frequency of, of gigs and performances? And, and where do magicians go to practice? You know, comedians go to an open mic. Did you do that as well, or was there some special place where magic would No, happen? my formative deal was the Colorado Renaissance Fair. So re- there's Renaissance Fairs all over the country. There happened to be one not that far from my, my house. And, you know, in case you've never heard of it, it's uh, you pay money to get into this festival and then you can buy crafts, eat food and um, see shows. And that was me. I was the show. I was one of many shows and I, w- I was crappy. Um, they put me on the bad stages at the bad times. I got paid 30 bucks a day and I did six shows a day. But that was it. Six shows a day. Well, it, for me, it was um, so it was, I ended up doing 15 shows a week for four years, summers only. Mm-hmm. That was fantastic because that kind of, you know, I bombed so many times. It gives you a lot of practice starting a show and doing the middles and trying to close a show. That it, I did a ton of that in four years. And I'd imagine in that tough environment, if something did work, when you brought it underneath the spotlights of a regular stage with the audience up close and willing, that it would be much stronger. So sometimes the toughest environments show us what, what really works no matter what. And you put that in a regular set setting and it tends to. Just yeah. Be- hallelujah. I, well, it's like same, same, same thing with open mic nights. I think those are brutal nights. So if you can get something working on an open mic night and then you take it to a, a weekend audience in a club, it's so easy. And mm-hmm. same thing is true with the Renaissance fair, but also the opposite was true where, with the Renaissance Fair, there's nothing holding the audience there. They are not at all obliged to sit in your audience. So they might sit and sample you for a minute. And then like 60 seconds later, you see them physically get up and leave. And it's not dark. It's sunny. You can see them leave. Right, right. We have this instant feedback that, um, you know, I've talked to entry-level speakers and they say, oh, I'm doing really well. And I think to myself, that's because your audience can't leave. <laughs> right. <laughs> you suck. You don't know you suck because they're being polite, but you know, they can't just can't leave. Yeah. It is different with speaking though. You're right. You're, you know, people will sit there for an hour because their boss is in the back of the room and the, you can't sneak past the boss and skip your continuing education credits or, or whatever you're going to get. So right. There's, there's dynamic. And then they see us on the way out the door and they say, Oh, that was great. But what else are they going to say? Like, it's too awkward to say, wow, Rick, that was really disappointing. Yeah. I'm not going to say that. So they, <laughs> it's, it's hard to get an honest read. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because it made me think of, of things people say to you on the way out of a show, and they don't know any better, and they sometimes don't know what they're saying and how it's received. But the thing that hurt me the most uh, after a show, and if you've got one uh, similar situation that comes to mind, let me know. But I was... Uh, emceeing a show so there, I was the first guy up 15 minutes there was a feature act 30 there's a headliner did an hour and, and I thought I did pretty good and, and most of the headliners and features would sell merchandise on the way out so I kind of hung out by them to say hey to the crowd and 
this lady comes up and she looks at the headliner. She's like, you were amazing. I want to buy everything you've got. I'm going to come back and see you next time. What's your name? Can I get your autograph? And she talks to him. Then she looks at the middle act and she goes, you know, you, I can see you're, you're just right there on the edge of, of getting huge. And man, I enjoyed your show. Then she looked at me and she goes, ah, nice effort. Oh, <laughs> and it was like, I'd rather her have said, I couldn't stand you at all. And I would just go, okay, she doesn't like my type of humor. But she, she <laughs> looked at me and implied that there was effort, but no success. And man, the fact that I remember that and I'm telling you today, uh, it just, it stung then, it still stings now. But it was honest and I probably needed to hear it and I needed to work harder. But did you ever have any comment that came after a show where you're like, I don't know if that's how they intended it, but this is how I'm interpreting it. Well, there's two comments that made me giggle. Back at the Renaissance Fair, I remember my parents came. Um, so I'm suffering through this show that I had worked so hard on. It wasn't any good, but it was hard to do. And my mom came up to me afterwards and said, oh, you should try to be funny. <laughs> and of course, I was trying to be funny. And that, uh, so then that sent me right into the therapist. But um, one of the things that I remember that ended up hurting a ton, and then finally when I figured it out, it also helped. I was working in a comedy theater in your neck of the woods. I was in um, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I did uh, 140 shows in three months there. Oh, wow. Uh, and I was with a, a stand-up comic and a singer. So the, it was like a three-person a three act. And we had, as part of the job, as people were leaving, we stood there like a wedding reception and people came and talked to us. And I heard so many people say like, oh, you're not so bad. <laughs> or like, you're doing fine. Almost like they were encouraging me. Right. And I, I that hurt my feelings. And they, they weren't saying that to the stand-up guy who was with me. And I couldn't figure. And then finally, Rick, I figured out what was happening. It was a silent crowd because there was food in the room. They were literally eating while I was up. Yes. And so I was doing a lot of saver lines about audiences not laughing. Tons of saver jokes. Uh-huh. And I thought, because I'm such a professional. Look at me use this awesome tool. I'm saving, you know, the fact that they're not laughing. But what I did was I made the audience uncomfortable because they're like, what's so, what's wrong with him that he has, he's, he's noticing that we're not laughing. We think he's doing fine. I just have roast beef in my mouth. I'm not laughing. And there, there was, so there was this big mismatch between what I thought was happening and what they thought was happening. And the result was a big disconnect between me and the audience. That is a, Excellent lesson that I think uh, bears repeating there. When you, when the lights are on you and you can't see what's going on out there, it's easy to get in your head and start, you know, just disqualifying your ability and and, and questioning the the booking and all kinds of stuff like that. Whereas, you know, if they're eating while you're up there, any if you get a single laugh while they're eating, that you are destroying that room. And we all know as performers, and we've all been in those situations. You know, you either eat or you choke if you try to laugh. So they're going to choose survival and living as opposed to, you know, giving you the feedback you deserve. Well, plus, they're hungry. It's normal that they would not want to laugh. It's normal right. that they would want roast beef. Yes. And that's, and that's as much of the draw to the, the venue probably as the show is for those folks. You know, I know if, if I went to see Dolly Parton's Dixieland Stampede, you know, they feed you food you have to eat with your fingers and, Meanwhile, people are jousting and <laughs> doing stuff out there. It's It can be tricky, but you did find a way. You know, you did those saver lines, which would get a laugh, but it did make the audience start to question. They weren't questioning your ability to, until you started questioning it. Knowing what the room is 
makes a big difference. And that's, that took me a long time to learn, too, because especially coming out of the comedy clubs into speaking, if I didn't destroy a room, you know, and just wail on them for 60 minutes, I thought I didn't do my job. But in those environments, like you say, eight in the morning or two in the afternoon, right after di- big lunch and all that kind of stuff, or even worse, after they've gone on a golf retreat in the afternoon and had free beverages and then came in and slammed down a prime rib and then you're, <laughs> and then you're up, you know, knowing what, knowing what is possible and knowing what is probable are, are two things that, you know, if a speaker and a comedian a performer has that in their back pocket, it definitely can take the stress out. Right. And it's hard, but also not only does it take the stress out, but it's the difference between genuinely bombing where they come up and say, you suck. I'll never hire you again. And them coming up and say they were silent and Rick, you were fantastic. Yeah, it definitely takes, takes the reps and the repetitions to get, get that down. And, and you know, the other thing too, when you're performing, or speaking by yourself, I find it to be, it's just so different than if you're amongst a lineup of speakers, you got four or five speakers that day and you've got to fit in, you got to serve, you got to do your role, you got to, you know, nurture the needs of the client, but you also have to find out how you differentiate yourself as a performer or a speaker within that group. When you're by yourself, you know, I find it too easy to maybe back off of giving yourself that extra boost that you should have knowing that, well, I'm the only thing they've got here today. And I, I found myself falling in that trap early where, Hey, I'm the only thing they've got. I'm not going to be the, the worst thing they've ever seen or the best. I'm just going to be what they saw. Do you feel any pressure or do you ever have where you make excuses for performances when you're the only speaker or comedian or magician versus having the benefit of multiple speakers, multiple entertainers in a venue to kind of, not just warm up the audience, but just when you're, you're creating the entire environment when you're by yourself is what I'm trying to get at. But because I think what you're saying is you love it when you have a warm up act because the audience is warmer. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I just think I I like it when they've seen a couple of speakers or a couple of comedians, so they the expectations have already been set, and I can either exceed those or maintain those, hopefully than setting them expectations all by myself and then having to do the work on top of it. <laughs> Yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but I think you're right on. I, I've thought of it a, a different way. You just named, uh, if you're following a golf outing and they they drink on the course and then there's happy hour, then there's prime rib, and then there's us. Um, the problem with that is not only is it a quiet audience, which makes our job icky, but I found also it um, it's hard on our business. So even though we might be killing the person who hired us, doesn't know we're killing because they haven't thought through the roast beef and the drinks on the golf course and the everything else. Mm-hmm. So uh, another way to, which is frustrating to me to no end. I just had that happen recently where I thought all things being equal, I did pretty well. Also it was horrible, but the, and the meeting planner didn't know what the hell to do with me. Like did Brad do well or not? Uh-huh. If like you were just talking about Rick, if I had, if I was following three other speakers, the meeting planner would be used to like, what's the temperature of this room? Oh, I, I guess no matter who it is, they're kind of quiet. Then when I get up there, I have less pressure. So I never thought of it that way, but hell yeah. Now that you mention it, I'm on team Rick. <laughs> there you go. And you, you, you just said a phrase that I was getting ready to bring up is the temperature of the room. And I guess two or three months ago, I was, I was trying to figure out what my main job was when I was at a conference or, or really even at a comedy show against, uh, you know, going up against other comics or with other comics, however you want to look at that. And I decided at that point that no matter where I was going to be, 
I would define partially my success is did I change the temperature in the room from where it was before I started to where I was afterwards. And so knowing what the temperature is, is the first part of that equation. And then knowing what it is when I'm done is the second part. And I don't know. I just think that's one of my two or three things. Every time I go on stage now is let's change the temperature in here. Let's take it up a notch, not just maintain the status quo or give them what they expected, but give them a little bit more than they expected so that not only are you more bookable and referable, but people remember you better. Gosh, I love that phrase. I, or, you know, the concept of changing the temperature of the room. I've never thought of it that way, but that is fantastic. Thank you. I, I think speakers look at it as, did I, did I change their mindset or did I have an impact or, you know, influence? I really don't like that word, even though that's the title of our conference every year. Did I, did I influence a different outcome uh, from the audience? But for a performer, there's that, I don't know, there's that rock and roll side of you that wants to, you know, just change the energy and the temperature in the room. So having that in my little pre-show mantra now has, has helped me have better shows when in the past I may have just gone up there and done what I did instead of really trying to have an effect on the, on the evening. Yeah. I love, I just, I love that for so many reasons. I think it could be helpful for us while we're on stage and while we're debriefing ourselves, but also like I said, when you're talking to the buyer about what, you know, cause our buyers do not know how to judge us. Mm-hmm. If, if the audience is on the floor laughing, that's easy for them to say, mom, he must've been good. But when the audience is quieter, they have little, very little experience judging. How'd that go? And if you use that phrase, oh, did we change the temperature of the room? Let me tell you what I saw. Yes, the temperature changed. That just sounds awesome. You know what? Even though I said it initially, I I think you just taught me that I need to put that in my my pitch when I'm trying to get a gig or separate myself from other comics in the initial round where they're looking at multiple people is, you know, my goal is not only to entertain – your audience, but to change the temperature in the room, leave them in a different state than they were when they came in. I, th- I think putting that up front might just register with them like the way it did with us right now that, hey, this is thinking a little bit outside the box a little bit. This sounds exciting. Let's go with this guy. So thank you for highlighting that. I'm going to put that in my pitch <laughs> my pitch call now. Do I get credit for your brilliance? Awesome. Love this. Well, I, I think you should use it in your pitch too. And then if, if people are pitching me and you together, We'll both change the temperature and they'll have the flu or something by the time the, the, the event's done. We'll see what happens. I want to get to your transition from, you know, being a magician in that year after college to becoming a speaker. You know, what led to that and what maybe your initial speaking content or topics were? Kind of shine some light on that for me. Yeah. All right. So um, I'd like to tell you, Rick, that um, I... S- had a passion for this message and just felt like this this message needed to get out. The world needed to hear it, but that was not the case. Um, it was the passion was trying to make a living at this and uh, constantly trying to make a few more bucks. And I realized as I was in showcases, so I, I started getting booked for showcases by speakers bureaus. So the and that what what that means for anyone listening to this that doesn't know is that you might have a, a speakers bureau that gets maybe 20 or 50 of their best clients in the room. That's your audience. And then they bring in five or 10 or 20 of their people on their roster. And we do samples of our speech or whatever. And then the buyers pick us. That's, what we, that's the plan. So I was, I was doing showcases um, as an entertainer. So book me to be your after enter- 
dinner entertainment. Um, and that was my first access to speakers who were not named Tony Robbins or Zig Ziglar. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and I, one, I thought, wow, I like a lot of these people. Like I'm enjoying what they're talking about. But then also it was a math and a business thing, Rick, where I realized, well, crap, all these buyers in the room are booking speakers. A tiny number of them are booking speakers and after dinner entertainment. Many of them are booking multiple speakers and zero after dinner entertainment, or maybe like four speakers and one person after dinner. Mm-hmm. And I just did the math and like, well, that that's a crappy market. If I did something in the daytime and I could say it was a speech, I would have an instantly larger market. Right. And it, it just came out of that. So I sat on my back porch with my wife and I wrote a speech. The, meaning, I'm, this can't be that hard. I'll just write it. As opposed to like this deep need to get my message out. It was the opposite. Right. What was that first speech like? It was, I'll tell you, it was like, it was miserably horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I remember it so well. Uh, Yeah, it was called Stack Your Deck from Success. And I was a fairly young guy, like, you know, young 30s talking about success principles, which is sort of ludicrous because what does a 30-year-old have to do? You know, what are they going to tell? A 50 year old about success right and it was a lot of cliches and you know stupid stuff but like comedy you can't be good until you're bad mm. so you know i was starting out being bad which i think is part of the deal you just have to start that's great i yeah i know my first couple of speeches even though they went over okay you're looking back at them now i'm like oh my goodness i was just i was impersonating a speaker yeah, that's funny, that playing the role of a speaker. Here you're trying to do it, but you just don't know. Let me just change the topic a little bit, but sure. inspired on what you just said. Right now, I'm, a, I'm just a full-time speaker. I'm not, I don't bill myself as a funny speaker, although clearly I want to be funny, but I'm just trying to be a speaker. And one of the things that is most exciting to this guy, even though I've been doing this for so freaking long, is the thought of holding them steady and holding them still without a laugh. Mm-hmm. Cause that just, you know, if you're trained as you and I are that laugh equals success, silent equals fail. So, and then just going on for five minutes straight, knowing it's heavy and you're, you're, it's not funny to me is like, that is so exciting right now and terrifying and meaningful and exhilarating and, you know, awful, and fantastic. It's, it's like the part that is most fun about my job. And how do you, like, what are some techniques you use to hold the audience? Are you, do you feel like you're a, a strong storyteller? What do you use to kind of create that tension and that suspense to keep them engaged? I've been practicing. Yeah, I'm a strong storyteller. So, the, But sometimes I, I allow it to be heavy. So let me give you an example. I tell a story um, in my current version of, the, of my keynote um, about my daughter being inspired by a different adult and it making it, I mean, inspired with a capital I, just like a life changing gesture. This adult gave to my daughter and made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Well, the old me would be to say that, right? Yeah. This woman was inspiring to my daughter and you might consider being inspiring to the people you meet too. That was the old me. And then I'd have to make jokes about it, you know, all the way through that story. And I'd have to make jokes about the person who make who was inspiring her and jokes about my daughter and jokes about it. It made a difference. Oh, yeah, but here's a joke about how that that moment really wasn't as powerful as it was. And 
I've done all of those things, Rick, where I've said this person was inspiring and I joke it off. And now, honestly, because I've had some coaches who said, Brad, you're an idiot. Quit making jokes. Now I just put it out there. This woman made a difference with my daughter. Mm-hmm. And everyone in the audience is going, oh, that's sweet. And it's heavy. And like, because I, I have built that moment up. It is heavy. And it's all I can do now to not release them from that because I know it's heavy. I know they're going like, holy crap, I'm a little weepy. That's crazy. That's really interesting. And I think and that obviously shows uh, maturation and an evolution of your program to be able to not go for the laugh. Even though you, you know it, it could serve as purpose there, it would totally derail the previous five or six minutes or whatever it is telling that story and, and diminish the impact on the audience. And I, I, I kind of feel and have learned as a speaker like you have that, you know, it's hard to tell when you're a serious speaker how you're succeeding because you don't have the laughter to reaffirm that what you're doing is correct. But when you look at them leaning in or tearing up or taking notes or sitting there being really thoughtful and they're probably seeing an experience in their life that you're reflecting within that story where somebody inspired them or how they maybe were on the giving end of that, that's a much deeper connection and will last just as long, if not longer, than a laugh will. It's just a different emotion you have to deliver as a speaker. So I'm curious at, at you know how recently you looked into getting mentoring and coaches and, and what made you think about taking that next step. Because that's a powerful step. And you know emotions is how we connect as entertainers and speakers. But that thoughtful, almost weeping emotion is, is something that's going to stick with them. Yeah. And I think it's more powerful if, if – if you have what we have, which is the ability to make them laugh, like genuine laughs, and then stop and say, like, here's something that kind of makes you feel. This, mm-hmm. this is a feeling. And, now, and then later I can, I can bring you back up with laughter. I'd love to tell you how it came up and how I thought it through, but it really wasn't that way. It was just experimenting with it. And then, it, you know, when people come up and say, uh, I, let me back up. When you're a magician, people come up and they have a, like a – 10 or 15 common responses. Oh, my grandfather did magic. Or how'd you do that one or whatever? And that was really, I was baffled. Have you ever seen David Copperfield? You hear the same responses all the time. Mm -hmm. And when you're a comedian, you hear different responses, but also similar responses. And then when I was finally getting to be a decent speaker, I was blown away by what people were saying to me afterwards because they weren't in the typical, they weren't what I was expecting. They weren't in that kind of, small world of here's the 10 things people can say instead it was stuff like you made me cry or you know like they kind of want to hug you and they whisper in your ear that they just lost their sister to cancer or something like and i'm and i don't talk about their sister and i don't talk about cancer but there's something they heard that is connecting with them in a way that i i just don't understand even now but i definitely didn't understand then but i'm starting to get the feeling that while they're listening to us, Rick, they're thinking about other stuff, mm-hmm. especially when we're telling stories that are not just set up, laugh, set up, punch, set up, punch. They're thinking about their own life and their, their own struggles. And then they give us credit for all of the connections they're making that we're, we're not doing for them, but just having that confidence that, okay, they're down somewhere. They're thinking about their lives and that's okay. They're not even paying attention to me in some ways. They're so wrapped up in themselves, and that's okay. That's that's excellent. And do you think 
Let's tr- that's that part is more transformational than just a quick laugh. It's a, a release, you know. It's they're internalizing it and projecting upon it their own experiences. Have you ever just taken a moment in that speech to go take a second right now and and think about the last time that you did this for somebody or somebody did that for you, so they they have time to 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 know it's okay to disengage for the speech for a second while you give them that moment. Yeah, I, I hate to admit it, but I do that a lot to say things like, yeah you know, we've been talking about this type of person. Who is that person you're thinking of right now? Yeah, All right, good. What are you, you going to do differently based on what we've talked about now with that person? Our time's about to wrap up. I, I don't, I don't want it to, cause I'm learning a lot from you here today as we talk, but I'm curious just from the speaking business side of things, you know, I've got things I do every year to kind of quantify if I'm improving as a speaker business, as well as being a speaker are there certain metrics you set for yourself or things you look at throughout the year at the end of the year, as you set the next year's goals that, that have really helped you improve the business side of things over the years? Yeah, but it's not what you're expecting. Cause I'm, a, I'm super right-brained, even the way I handle my business is super right-brained, meaning uh, metrics. I don't use that word. I barely know how much money I make every year. I have to ask my wife, how are we doing? Oh yeah, you're doing great this year. Oh, I had no idea. Which sounds like I'm joking, but I am not kidding. <laughs> but um, the thing that maybe six years ago really changed. I, I, now, I've been in this 31 years. So to say the last six years ago I started doing this is embarrassing because I can't believe it took me that long. But what changed, and um, not only did it change my onstage stuff, but it changed my business in a huge way, which was to get better on stage. Mm. Um, so I started working more and more with coaches. I like I call up people like you, Rick, uh, peers who are doing well on the, it, it, you know, in my job. People I share a million things in common with, and say, "Would you would be willing to look at my tape and help me?" And um, and often, often I I trade them. Like in exchange, I would look at yours and give you my perception of what you're doing. But oh, that's made such a big difference. It's terrifying because you're having your peers pick on you, which is hard. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm amazed at all of the amazing blind spots I have that I, when people tell me things that are unbelievably true, the instant it comes out of their mouth, you know, it's true. And yet I never once considered it because I'm blind to my own issues. Doing that just made a huge difference to my bottom line because I'm getting more work and I'm convinced it's because I'm getting better. Just knowing what those blind spots are without any advice attached to it is a huge help, but to be able to have insight and go, Oh, and change that word right there or pause for a second or don't dismiss this huge. I had this uh, comedian just really recently, a pal of mine, Nancy Norton. She said, uh, she was looking at this story and in the story, I talk about how I was walking on the beach and this funny stuff happened. And she said, yeah, I don't buy it. This doesn't feel real. And you know, as soon as she said it, I'm like, well, I've told that story so much and it's morphed through my telling away from the truth that she's right. That isn't the way it happened. And I never once, you know, and she, she was saying there's, you're kind of losing your audience because it just sounds you're, like you're lying. And I, I didn't know it, <laughs> right. like, but I've told that story a lot. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's your problem is, and now it sucks. Hmm. Yeah. It's, that's key insight for sure. Sometimes it's just like you're telling that joke wrong or here's a topper to make your joke even better. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like that other woman, like, yeah, this whole story seems like you're making it up. Oh, wow. That's pretty ginormous. Or I've had people too say this five minute bit sucks. You have to get rid of it. It's not savable. 
Well, yeah. you know, when they're right, that saves you a lot of heartache, even yeah. though it hurts. Yeah, that's that's too funny. Well, I'm going to let, let us wrap up here. Um, if people want to find out more about you, and I think they should, where's the best place to send them? And also, are you active on any social media that would you, you would like to connect with people? Yeah, come come visit me, uh, bradmontgomery.com. If you're willing, do me a favor. Go to bradmont or youtube.com slash then it's my name, numeral one. So uh, youtube.com slash Brad Montgomery one, numeral one. Go there and hit subscribe and watch one of the videos and hit thumbs up, leave a comment. Those little things make a big difference. And I, I, if you got anything out of this, I hope you try it. That sounds great. Well, Brad, I super I am thankful for your time today and I hope to catch up pretty soon. And we'll talk in a second after we say officially goodbye about how we can connect and help each other out moving forward. Rick Roberts, you're a star. Thank you, buddy. You too. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Brad Montgomery. I like what we talked about there quite a bit, about not only just making people laugh, but making them think and feel. And as we talked about changing the temperature in the room, whether you're a speaker or a comedian, you can kind of gauge your shows, gauge your performances, gauge your programs and your keynotes based on that criteria, which I really like. And I'm using that term more and more often now to help event planners kind of find out if I did what I was supposed to do. I'm going to come in there and heat it up a little bit. That's the goal. (laughs) Hey, if you're in Nashville, Tennessee, or close by, we've got our new writing classes coming up November 4, 11, and 18. That'll be right here in Nashville from 6 to 8 p.m. Cost is $200, and that comes with a lifetime membership, so you can come back and take the class anytime I teach it. Because you'll, you'll be at a different level, you know, a few years down the line or even a few months down the line. You come back, sit in, and get charged up and refocused. So that class again, November 4, 11, and 18. Those are three Mondays. We meet from 6 to 8, downtown Nashville area. And if you want more information, shoot me an email to schooloflaughs at gmail.com. All right, that's going to do it for this week. Stay safe out there, everybody, and stay funny. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.